Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. The BRRC or BRC animals leave 40% faster. So a dog that had been kept up in the shelter for behavioral training would be there for 40 days. And at the BRC is 27. So that tells me the architecture is doing something right. And it may be that it's just a nice place for people to work and, the, and that flows from the, the people working with these animals. But I have to think that there's something about the thoughtfulness of, of how we got to that plan and the lighting and the calm that really helps them. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. My guest today is Sarah Canteen, Architect and Senior Associate at Scott Edwards Architect right here in Portland, Oregon. Sarah holds a master's degree in architecture from the University of Oregon, go Ducks, and is a certified sustainable building advisor. With over 20 years of experience, Sarah brings a broad understanding of construction, detailing, and site context, and has a demonstrated ability to respond to unique project challenges. She enjoys working closely with clients to develop specific solutions to complex projects and is particularly drawn to work with a larger community impact. The project we are going to talk about today is the Oregon Humane Society, or OHS, the New Road Ahead Project in Portland, Oregon. Very unique, by the way. But before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click the link in our show notes or visit www.rcat.com slash podcast. In the heart of Portland, a symphony of compassion unfolded as the Oregon Humane Society, or OHS, embarked on the New Road Ahead project, a transformative expansion that would solidify its position as a national leader in animal welfare. Oregon Humane Society, the country's second oldest humane society, has been a sanctuary cradling animals in need 
for over a century and a half. I know this because I actually went there as a little girl. After modest beginnings, the growth and natural evolution of its program and services over time have necessitated a transformative expansion of its facilities. It started out providing services for particularly horses. They saw a lot of workhorses in downtown Portland, and they developed the Oregon Humane Society really for, for the horses and providing for them. And it gradually grew to providing for a lot more. And now it's particularly dogs and cats and small animals. And they had a capital campaign a while back to build a larger shelter, and that, that included a small teaching hospital in it. And they've been doing great. They provide a lot of services. Uh, they started adding on deputized police staff to help confront animal abuse. So they started to see their program growing and not just being about making sure that a cat or a dog that was picked up off the streets was healthy or adopted. It was starting to be more of a holistic look at animals in general, our, our domesticized animals, domesticated animals. So they were recognizing also um, that they were getting a lot of animals brought in who were very sick and old, and they were being brought in because, it's not because their family didn't love them or want to keep them, but the costs of medical care for animals, as we know with people, has gone through the roof. And we can do more for animals. And of course, you know, loving owners of animals are, you know, there are fur babies, would want to give them the best. And so they were finding people were surrendering their animals so that they could get the medical care. And that's not what they want. They want animals to be kept with their loving families. And so they realized that there was a really big need to provide animal care for people who couldn't afford uh, animal care. And so they started to look at potentially adding a hospital, expanding their forensics department so that they could take care of animal abuse cases. They were also finding that they were getting hoarding cases where they would have, for instance, 200 Akitas. One, one year they got 200 Akitas from a hoarder and they had to house these animals while that case worked itself through the court system. And so they rented a warehouse and they housed these 200 animals for, for over a year. I think it was almost two years. And they realized, wow, that's going to happen again in the future or a natural disaster, which they, if there's a fire in like, let's say, up the Columbia Gorge, they evacuate all of those animal shelters and bring the animals somewhere. They bring them now, you know, they realize that they, they were the repository for some of those evacuations. So they realized they needed a space for that. And they also were having animals that needed more care and nurturing to become adoptable. So they needed a space for those animals to take a slower pace through the system and not have to kind of be ready and presentable to be for adoption right away. So those were some of the trends they were seeing. So you now we get animal hospital, a forensic center, a behavior center, and a resource rescue center. Those were the four pillars, so to speak, of the new road ahead. Those are the four main programs that we were tasked to try to bring into one facility, which was not really possible. Originally, they wanted it to be part of their shelter. And just with the way circulation worked, the original shelter had you know, a front and a back and very little circulation around it. We really tried our hardest and the project morphed several times and they had bought the property next to the original shelter. And that's what ended up being built were two different buildings. One housing the rescue center and the behavior animals and that's called the BRC. And then another building which houses the hospital and the forensic center, which could kind of share resources. 
you know, MRI type machines and certainly x-ray and, and staff and volunteers. So both of those facilities are on the same piece of property, but we tried many different routines, like how do we get all these things to work together into one building and realize that they really belong as two buildings separately. The site was quite a challenge and point of stress early in the process. To get additional insight from the owner's perspective, we also spoke with Stephen Coaches, Chief Medical Officer for the Oregon Humane Society. Probably the biggest challenge was, yeah, the unknown entity of the land that we were going to build on, which is adjacent to our existing building. Previous to us doing the, the building, it was a commercial truck trucking tire center. And there was a, a pretty steep grade elevation change from our existing property down to this adjacent property. And just kind of, you know, we didn't know what we were going to find with the soil, what it was going to be like to build on. So just some uncertainty with what was it going to be like even before we started construction. So all of that had to be considered as well as they, once we picked our architects, so Scott Edwards, they were actually really critical in us choosing our contractors for the project. It's on Columbia Boulevard, which is also a highway. So you're not just dealing with Portland Department of Transportation but at the Oregon Department of Transportation. So it's got this extra layer of, it's gonna be hard to close it down. They had their own requirements for all of that. There had to be some right of way improvements done. There are actually four different permits on this project and there might've even been more. I think there actually were more because they parceled out the trash enclosures, so there might've been five. They had site improvements, not only along Columbia Boulevard, which is a very busy road, but also along all the side streets, plus the site itself. And that, if for anyone that has ever done a site improvement, knows it's extremely expensive because you're talking about new curbs, new lighting, new signage, new street trees, all of that kind of stuff, which all has its own regulations. And one thing that was, was happening, we were at first using not only the site that everything got built on, but potentially the site below, which they also owned. And we realized that if we removed one of the existing buildings that the tire company had used for their maintenance, because there was a series of canopies and buildings on the site before we cleared it, that we would have to do street improvements all the way down if we used the whole, the whole site. And that got, got so costly that we decided we would stop our development on the tire site and keep that building, which was holding up basically the corner of the whole site, and use that in our plan rather than the expense of having to do retaining walls and all those street improvements, it really had a huge effect on how we looked at that parcel to be used. So would they have done it that way originally? Maybe not. I think it was a happy accident because I think they will use that building. I think it will get utilized, but it was definitely something that entirely changed how we approached the site. And we just had to, you know, think, okay, you got to be nimble. you got to figure out what's the best use for this site. Without looking at a, at a map and understanding it, it was a really complicated site. And it had been used for many years in, in different sort of manufacturing or, or storage facilities. So there was, some, there was definitely some ground mitigation, soils mitigation that had to happen. There were all, all kinds of little things that had to be involved with sort of where the front of the building is. You know, it's not on Columbia. It's on the side. Um, so that involved new approaches and thinking through the entry sequence. And then the land itself, because it's for animals, and yet here it is in an industrial area on a highway. How do you make that both iconically Oregon humane, 
but also a more humane place. And so our landscape architect came up with a series of a party of, of mounds. And at these mounds are gently rolling hills along Columbia. And so as you're driving by, you're mostly seeing nature, seeing more landscape than you would from the other buildings. But you get these little glimpses through every time you hit a low point in to see, oh, there's a building in there. Oh, that's the hospital. Oh, so it's, it's sort of giving you sneak peeks. But the mounds continue on into the landscape plan for a very different reason in that dogs circulating around the park or the, um, the sort of entry area, if they didn't want to keep them inside while they're waiting for their appointments, they could be walked outside around some mounds and they wouldn't see each other, but the humans could see over the mound and make sure to kind of keep animals away from each other and not so stressed. So there is a lot of thought that goes into just the approach, how we had to deal with existing buildings, how the landscape responded to both people passing the building, but also the animals within the building. And it's from a, a large scale level, but then also to a granular level of even, you know, making the, the sidewalks through the parking lot out of concrete instead of asphalt so that dogs wouldn't have to walk on hot surfaces in the summer. Now, developing a design solution had to address a myriad of complexities, largely around the diversity of the needs for the program. Steve provided additional insight into the goals of the project. Yeah, there were four, I guess, like main pillars to the New Road Ahead project. One was building the community hospital. So prior to October of last year, we just provided care for any of the pets that were, again, owned by Oregon Humane Society. So the community hospital was probably the biggest undertaking. So being open to the public, providing general veterinary medical services, preventive care, dentistry, surgery, spay, neuter, all of that. We built a, an animal crimes and forensic center. The main purpose of that is to actually have dedicated space to pursue you know, animal crimes. While we were doing it before, we would have to find space within the existing shelter that wasn't necessarily designed or built for that kind of work. And so this kind of like makes our chain of custody, evidence collection, processing, all of that is like pretty solid and locked up. So there's no room for defense attorneys to kind of poke holes in our cases when we're pursuing those types of things. And then for behavior and rescue, in the event that we're asked to take in a large number of pets, either from the area or as part of a humane investigations case or secondary to like a natural disaster, like during the fires of 2020, we have to move pets around. And it's not necessarily convenient to have to move pets around to make space to take in a large number or we have to put a bunch out into foster. It just, it, it, it's a lot of extra stress for the team as well as a lot of extra stress on the animals already in our care, not to mention whatever we're trying to accommodate. So having dedicated space to do a large scale intake and then have time for those pets to settle before we work with our transfer partners or you know get them into foster, et cetera. So having that rescue component and then behavior modification Prior to having dedicated space that's closed to the public, those pets that were in behavior modification, unfortunately, were mixed within the general population. So again, not super great for them if you were trying to minimize stress and having just, again, dedicated space for them to kind of recover, quiet, work with you know just a designated team has been super, super helpful. So those are the four main things that we did during the New Road Ahead project. One of the things is that they use some of the same staff between the shelter and the hospital and the BRC that 
you have to also be very careful about co-locating enough things that people aren't not you know going halfway across their entire campus just to run someone some pills or something like that. It, it had a very complex interrelationship aspect to it, circulation-wise, staffing-wise, visually. I mean, there were just so many different little layers to this. But one thing I wanted to say about Oregon Humane is it, this is all about trying to find the best way to be a leader for innovation and to really try to look holistically at the, at the entire animals process through this kind of facility and what their needs are, meeting all those needs in, in, in one sort of holistic sense. And, and a lot of healthcare facilities are doing that. Now you, you hear it called integrated healthcare, where you might go see your doctor, but your, your pharmacist is also there, maybe your dentist is, and maybe even your psychiatrist all in one place so that you're more likely to get that full holistic treatment. And that was the same thinking with the Humane Society. And I think it's testament to how long they, they've been in service, that they've had this track record and seen their industry start with horses and end up with dogs and cats and small animals. So they've seen these ways and how it changes and they wanted to be as nimble as possible and to reflect the times because they also don't know where it's going to go. They want to be prepared for well, how it morphs in 50 years. And they had some great people on staff and their CEO was great and everyone was really on board for being really experimental, even though we sometimes came back to the most obvious solution, they really looked at everything to make sure this was as being as forward thinking as possible and as dedicated to that kind of holistic look at, at how you take care of an animal who needs your help. I loved hearing that every element of this project was viewed through the lens of an animal. So the ground floor of the hospital building is, is, like, you'd, is like you'd expect a, a vet hospital to be. A nice big generous lobby, which is very glassy, which we have bird-safe glass. You don't want to traumatize people sitting in there. But it's, it's designed to be kind of this big open space so that as you bring an animal in from the parking lot, that they don't sense that they're coming into the confines of the building. It's kind of more of a gentle, like, oh, yeah, we're, you know, it's a little transition, but it's not too scary. And then there are some nice generous hallways that lead to exam rooms, which are they have a very similar flooring to the lobby. So we tried to, to minimize the sensory transitions for an animal. And that actually even starts in the parking lot because we've got these things called pee posts. You'll learn in discussing or talking to me about Oregon Humane is that everything comes down to urine. <laughs> everything gets peed on at some point. So to try to just try to keep that outside as much as possible, we started with these posts in the parking lot, which dogs will confront. They're tall. They're inviting, they get peed on immediately, and then the dog doesn't come in with a full bladder. Things like that of trying to figure out, like, how is a dog or a cat going to confront or experience this space as they're brought in? What I think I appreciated most is that they talk to all different partners and, like, that help get OHS, get the work that we do every day, get it done. And by that, I mean they talk to volunteers. They talk to some of our transfer partners. They talk to staff and not just the people that were directly involved in the project, but the people like that were, you know, in the trenches doing the work, you know, walking the animals, doing behavior modification. They actually immerse themselves in our daily work for a period of time and then spend time going to other organizations throughout the United States that we identified as people like, hey, they're already doing this work or they're doing something similar. So what can we learn from them? And so they spent time, everything from going to the Oregon Zoo and looking how they do housing of certain species 
to a national center with the ASPCA on the East Coast in North Carolina, looking at hospitals around Pacific Northwest that had done, you know, recent either new construction or remodeling. And again, like, let's not make the same mistakes. Let's learn from other people's mistakes. And then, you know, what else, what was the best and what was the worst? And like, let's try to take the good and and leave the bad. The OHS assembled a really great crew of people. And I mean, people who work at animal shelters anyway are wonderful because they're just, you know, they really have their heart in the right place. They also have to be very intuitive about how an animal is going to react because there's an an element of danger. I mean, if, if you spook an animal that you don't know, that animal could bite. And if that you know, not only hurt you, but they could potentially, you know, hurt their chances of survival, frankly. So there's always this really constant awareness that you're dealing with an animal that cannot articulate what the problem is. And so you have to be very aware and attuned to how they are trying to tell you what they're trying to tell you. So repeatedly, OHS, their, their design team, which included doctors and facilities managers and uh, trainers and you know, you name it, volunteers that were just there to help move a dog from here to there or a cat from here to there. They were constantly telling you, oh, well, you know, when they do that, that thing is this. And they're, or they're going, they've done it so many times. They go, oh, well, if I did that, this cat's going to have a reaction because they don't like to see other cats face on or something. They, they would they would start to articulate those things and often would act them out. And we also went and spent some serious time job shadowing. So... OHS has something called Second Chance, where they take in transports, particularly from California. There's a 12 hours away is, is Merced, California. That's that's the length of time of driving that you can drive with animals in a vehicle before you have to take a potty break. And so they that's primarily how far they go, and then another transport would meet them there. And that's how they can physically do what they do. And, and the, one of the first transports we saw coming up had 100 animals in this special van. And there were cats and dogs. I think it was 100. I sh- yes, I think it was pretty close. So there are cats and dogs, and they get separated, and then they get all the paperwork gets processed, and then they go and they get fed, and they get put in their kennel, and they either get walked first of all. So there's this whole process of how that happens. But those volunteers and staff just get to know how an animal is going to react to scenarios so well that it's like clockwork. I mean, they just they just know what to do, and they are so forthcoming with like we do this this way for this reason. And we don't break from this protocol, but maybe we could do it this way for another reason. This deep understanding and consideration of user experience extended to the exterior of the building as well. First designed, like I said, very spread out, complex, a lot of natural light, a very articulated building, lots of fingers going out so that we could have a lot of windows. And just budgetary-wise, we were the bids were coming in, estimates were coming in so high that we realized we have to make this squish it down. The contractors were really good about reminding us, hey, you want to afford this building, you have to think about it as a box. So that kind of goes against, it's a little antithetical to providing kind of a daylit natural environment for animals, which comforts them and soothes them. So we had to get creative with some of those spaces. Not as much in the hospital because the animals aren't there very long, although we do, anywhere the animals were for more than a couple of hours, they were in a room that did have natural light. So that was the first thing is trying to think about how to get daylight into the building. So we have windows as anywhere we can, anywhere a human is going to be for a long time or an animal is going to be for a long time. So there are windows everywhere. Where, anywhere an animal is going to be close to the building, like around the BRC, when they go out for walks and they get brought back, 
just assume it's going to get peed on. So everything at a certain height or below a certain height is a concrete block, the concrete lintel, and is really well sealed. And that holds true also for the hospital. You'll see that the, the brick wraps around the front of the building. We don't need it in the back, but it's not uncommon to find, you know, front facade materials and back facade materials. It's very common to have a very, you know, a little bit of a mullet in a way, or think of it as, you know, you're forward facing and then behind the scenes is not as necessary. But we chose also above all of that for tying the buildings together, a really nice, what we think is a really nice metal siding. Turned out to be really good. We hadn't seen it installed anywhere, but we took a chance on it because we really liked the color and the shape, particularly interestingly enough, because the facilities manager was concerned about uh, box rib, which is when you get metal siding that just does a square up and square down and square across, this is sort of keystone pattern. They were afraid that that might be too much maintenance because birds could nest in it and spiders would create nests in it. So we found this really simplified version, which was just triangle. So it would go a flat panel and a triangle and and then flat panel and triangle. And sometimes there were three triangles in a row, so three ridges or sawtooths or however you want to call it. And it turned out really well. But it also was kind of interesting because that getting rid of that extra box rib, because it's now only had three, two sides that came up and over instead of three, is saved on actually the, the amount of metal that went into the siding. So it had another little effect, but it also we also choose a color that the, the maintenance people wanted because they didn't want a maintenance issue. And so we chose a color that was kind of iridescent and would age well and would have be kind of dirt. You wouldn't see a lot of dirt on it because they had concerns about that. And I think that that actually, that, that formed our palette for a lot of the exterior. This idea of, of making it uh, acceptable to the maintenance people, that actually kind of fed into like, well, how is this building going to look? If, if this, we know this material will work for them. And so that's really a lot of what, you know, guided us. We, we tweaked it, but this one material that we could get absolute sign off ended up being our predominant exterior material, which I think it looks lovely. Everyone comments that it's really interesting because it changes over the course of the day with this slightly iridescent quality and, and interesting vertical pattern that doesn't really repeat, but it repeats a little. Inside. Thoughtful material choices for simplicity, durability, and air quality were absolutely key. Simplifying the palette, first of all, not, not trying to use and do too much. We use really durable materials. If we knew something was, was going to get a lot of use, we invested there. Where we felt like it wasn't going to get the same kind of use, for instance, in the offices, you wouldn't have to put the same kind of durability into an office desk that, you know, for the doctors, maybe mostly in the operating room or in the treatment room. But you might have to put that into the front counter at the lobby. And for instance, we used solid surface Corian on that entire front desk. So a dog can be on it. That's not going to do any harm. It's going to be a puddle on the floor, but that's easy to clean up. And it's a concrete floor, so that's easy to clean up. And all of the benches that we put in the lobby around the windows are very are the same material. So they can be cleaned. They have some laminate on the faces of them, but if that gets scuffed up, you pop the laminate off and you can re-laminate that. So we tried to do things that, that really figured out where was going to get the most wear and invest in those and be easy to repair when we could repair. And then try to keep the palette really simple. Corner guards on everything, you know, FRP, unfortunate where we needed it, but it's a very good surface. That's a fiber reinforced panels. You can usually see it in bathrooms where it's got a little bumpy surface, but it's really, really durable when you're ramming a, you know, 
uh, accidentally you know ramming a, a cart into it or something. So we tried to to build as sturdy a building as possible. Shelters, BRC, they require a lot of air exchanges to keep the air fresh and clean and non, you know, you really want the cleanest air in a hospital, for instance, or a kennel where you might have some kennel cough or another infectious disease. You don't want it to kind of run rampant through your facility. So they have, it takes so much energy to keep the air clean that a big portion of your budget goes to that. And it really is not a very sustainable thing to do because it takes up a lot of energy. Apparently, our mechanical engineer came out with like a slide his, his first day on the, on the sustainability charrette and said, nope, you're not going to get it through electricity. You're, you're using more than just about any other user in the, in the city. So we tried to just build a really durable building. You know, figure out what, what your most important things to get done and accomplish. Durability against urine and, and animal claws good HVAC system, and then everything else has to kind of figure out, rise to a high priority or not. The 71,100 square foot expansion is comprised of two buildings. One houses the Community Veterinary Hospital and the Animal Crimes Forensic Center, and the other includes the Behavior Modification and Rescue Center. The Community Veterinary Hospital is public-facing and intentionally organized for the efficiency, comfort, and safety of both the animals and their humans. It consists of exam, treatment, surgery, and dental surgery rooms. So the ground floor has exam rooms with a center treatment room. And as you work further into the building, there there are surgery suites and all of the different procedural places that you need, plus some housing for longer-term patients. So it's as simple and as intense as it needs to be. So if you're just coming for a shot, you only go in so far. And if you're going in for a really major surgery, you would experience the full building. And that shares a connection with the, the forensic center above. So they can share an elevator, they can share loading space, they can share garbage, all of the things that we could try to link together so we're not doubling up on paying for two you know, garbage shelters. That's a thing. You, know, you don't want to have these things spread out so far that they become a burden to your budget. Because every dollar that's not spent saving an animal or not spent, you know, working on the building is, is saving an animal somewhere else. The hospital, intricately connected to the forensic center, was a testament to strategic planning that optimized resources and fostered collaboration. The Animal Crimes Forensic Center, which was strategically located near the hospital to optimize resources, is on the second floor of the hospital building and is only the second of its kind in the nation. So the forensic center is upstairs with a nice uh, the call center. We, we actually had designed some space upstairs for future build-out, which has already been built out. Because once they see it, it's like, well, that's great for this program. They can advance their programs even further. So that was great. And a break space. And there's a bridge that, that actually takes you to the main level of the shelter. With the many adjacent uses and its own unique requirements, the forensic center has a variety of special considerations. At the top of the list? Security, number one. Because the forensic center is essentially an evidence gathering tool. I mean, you're not taking care of animals, animals deceased at that point. But you also might not be just dealing with deceased animal. There might just be evidence, dry evidence, for instance, computers or receipts and other kinds of evidence like that that come from a hoarding situation or an animal abuse situation that may document that animal's abuse. And so 
you need a couple of different tools to take that evidence in. One of them is in, in a necropsy room. And a necropsy room is just an autopsy room that, that's for animals. And they use kind of a similar exam table, similar head sinks. I mean, similar air ventilation, very important. And cleanability is really important in that room. Space for rolling trays, ability to bring in an animal on a trolley. When necropsies are done, the support spaces for that are also a cooler. So let's do the scenario that, that a, a dog was found and had to be brought in for a necropsy. Maybe it had a bullet wound or something like that. It was the cause of death. They would bring the animal in and through an elevator and bring them upstairs to the secure area. And they would come through doors that only certain people have access to that can be recorded as who came in with that evidence when. And so you come in and you first log it into a, uh, the cooler if they're going to be waiting for the for the autopsy or the necropsy. And then it would go into the necropsy room, which has all those things, the, the um, sinks and the, the tables and all that and the lighting, which all have their own requirements in terms of installation. And the lighting requires a tremendous amount to keep it stable on the ceiling because they're quite heavy. Then they would go and be processed after they're done with the necropsy, they would go into a freezer where until they were ready to be disposed of or re-examined, I suppose, um, or released to whoever whoever was the owner of them. That's part of an evidence room where everything gets put in after. There's also dry evidence, like I was saying, computers, dry papers, things. So that has a dry evidence room where there's microscopes and there are computers to look things up and there are sorting tables and lighting and ability to photograph things. And then there's also a chemistry lab where you might be testing for poisons or toxins or do blood work or something like that. And that's where that kind of evidence is gathered. So there's the three distinct areas where they each do a different task, but they do, and they all produce some sort of evidence, but it's, it's a little bit different in nature each time and a different storage facility each time. So it's actually quite a small space because it's a, a smaller staff, but it's a very important part of, of what they do. And a lot of what they do also happens outside of that area. That's just the, the evidence gathering and storage area. They have a separate space where they have officers who can do all the police work that normal police officers do. And that's a big important part of, of what they do because oftentimes for animal abuse, it's in, it will often be happening. Someone may say, oh, I hear this animal being abused. Officers sometimes find that there's other abuse going on. It's often just just the tip of the iceberg of other issues, societal issues that are happening that, that then are get sort of enveloped by other police procedures and people. So, To address security needs for the Animal Crimes Forensic Center, the team addressed some elements through design and construction methods. That means building all of your, your walls to the underside of the sheathing of the roof and hardening walls, which is a process of, of placing plywood underneath your drywall. If evidence comes in after hours, there's a small locked transfer box, essentially, where you, where someone has access with a key from the outside, puts evidence in and locks it, and you can't open it, but it can be opened from the backside into an evidence gathering room. They're very, very careful about how evidence comes in, but they're also careful about who can get into that space. Also on the second floor, a large and airy staff break room serves as a hub 
for the campus. It keeps the staff connected because there's this nice great break room that they didn't have in the shelter. And now people can come over to the hospital and experience. And so there's, they're still keeping their culture connected to one another and working together. At the Behavior Modification and Rescue Center building, or BRC, staff perform specialized training and socializing work to improve the behavior and lives of the cats and dogs, increasing their chances of being adopted. And then because there are more security issues with the sensitive animals, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, some of these animals that are part of the rescue center and the behavior center might have been animals that are, are part of an ongoing case against a hoarder or an animal abuser. And because they don't belong to the Oregon Humane Society and they still are someone else's property, they have to be housed very carefully so that they're secure and safe and are getting proper nutrition. They can monitor all of that, but they're still technically actually, we're looking for the third evidence. If you think about it, it's a very strange concept, but these animals are evidence and potentially a crime. So they have to be very, very safely monitored. And so they're you know, very well protected with security and they are in a rescue center, which is this other building. The spaces in that are a typical kind of kennel space where you like the Humane Society has and any other shelter has. And that's kind of a main volume of the, the rescue portion. But in the rehabilitation center, the kennels are broken up into smaller groups. And that's so that you can isolate very sensitive dogs and cats into smaller groups where there isn't as much noise and activity and stimulation. And there are a variety of different types of, they're all, the kennels are all the same, but they're in smaller groups and they have slightly different spaces. But all of those are linked into pause of three. You can slowly, as, as the animals get more comfortable with their little pods, they can be let out and have meet and greets. And then they share a little outdoor space with the next pod over. So as, as the animals get even more comfortable, they can maybe meet and greet with their group of six, one-on-ones or whatever works. And those can be monitored by kind of a central space. And gradually as the animals become more and more comfortable, they might move to a more active part of the rehabilitation center, or they get to go into the apartments they're called where they're kind of a single room. They're no longer in the studio apartment. Now they've got you know the one bedroom. And those ones are kind of like, okay, they might be taken to a room with, a, with an easy chair and a couch so they can learn how to use a, a couch. They may have never seen the inside of a house. They often are, are from neglect or abuse and have never been really socialized. And so it's kind of training that animal to feel comfortable for their future life as a pet. Those animals are usually adopted out separately because, you know, they're a little quirky. They're not your average sort of corgi, you know, but for a grandbaby, but... It's really great that they get that chance to kind of calm down. Sometimes, too, they're also brought from the shelter just to calm down in the BRC. And then we have the same similar area for, for the cats as well. And one thing that I've never had in my career is a statistical response to something we've done. And it's been really great to work with an animal rescue because they keep statistics on everything. You know, how many dogs they see, how many cats they see, how many cases of, you know, fleas versus, you know, ringworm. But they say that the animals that are in the BRC now, when they had to give them the same kind of care in the shelter versus the BRC, the BRRC or the BRC animals leave 40% faster. So a dog that had been kept up in the shelter for behavioral training would be there for 40 days. 
and at the BRC is 27. So that tells me the architecture is doing something right. And it may be that it's just a nice place for people to work and, the, and that flows from the, the people working with these animals. But I have to think that there's something about the thoughtfulness of, of how we got to that plan and the lighting and the calm that really helps them. The design, down to the last detail of kennels and outdoor spaces, was a commitment to providing a supportive environment for animals on their journey to recovery. Other critical components to that supportive environment are natural light and sound attenuation. I couldn't imagine being a happy animal without daylight. I mean, a happy human, let alone an animal that didn't have control over why they were there. And so our whole team felt very strongly that natural light NOHS as well felt the same way. That was a real challenge that when you're pushed to try to squeeze everything into the least expensive exterior that you can, because, you know, you try to limit the amount of siding and exterior and foundation work, all that stuff that goes into building a, a skin around a building and building as consolidated a building as possible. It's really hard to get daylight in the middle of that building. And so we put all of our, as many of our hallways, as many exam rooms, the things that didn't naturally need light, we tried to push those in the middle, the commissary, the laundry room, things that, that we could pull in the center naturally went there first. But in, for instance, in the rescue center where they might, where they have 24 kennels and it's a big room, how do you bring light in? And it's kind of, they only had one exterior wall. What we did is we did a kind of curious inverted truss. So usually your trusses, your, your roof trusses are like this and we inverted it. So it's even upside down. So it's like that. And what that did was to give us a clear story on one side and a ceiling that sloped in so it could skim all that light from the clear story. And then the one that had the natural light was on the lower side, but it, it already could skim light as well in through that side. And it had a nice benefit that it also let us put acoustical panels facing in opposite directions down so that the noise is not just being bounced on the ceiling and then bounced over. It kind of collects in a smaller zone and makes for a much more quiet interior. So we could we could do two things at once, that sound attenuation and getting light to the very center of the building. Following this experience, Sarah shared some of the biggest lessons learned from the project. Because there were so many people, I think my, my skill level at navigating complicated groups of people, I mean, I don't mean complicated people, I mean just complex systems of people. We worked with from Sharon, who's the CEO, and her team, which branched out to a bunch of eight people, Ashley and Jace and Dr. K and Dr. O and, you know, all these, that team. And then you branch out to the larger staff, which, you know, includes the person who always, you know, is in charge of the cleaning of all the shelter. And then they are the ones that tell you how that happens and gives you the facilities knocked down of that. And then you can deal with people who operate the teaching hospital and who are the, the, the leads. And then you deal with, I forget how many volunteers. They have a huge volunteer staff, huge. Some just clean, go work in the laundry. Some walk dogs, some, you know, do behavior training. I mean, there were so many different groups of people that each have their own interest, worries, concerns, focuses, passions. And it just was a very big learning experience of how to navigate that entire input. We had one design charrette where we, we, we had a charrette with at least 40 or 50 people. And we showed almost 200 slides, I like had 147 or something. And we asked them for, 
we had post-it notes and they were just supposed to give us their spitfire reaction to what we were showing them on the screen. And we got thousands, of course, or 40 times, 50 times, a hundred and something. We've got thousands and thousands of reactions to these visual images of what the feel of the place should look like. So we went macro, went, you know, just navigating all of that input. I just feel like we, I, I learned a tremendous amount about people, how to talk to people, how to synthesize information from them, and then how to be able to explain what we needed to get from them. But there was a very intense experience didn't always nail it, you know. Some people are probably like, darn it, I really wanted it to be, you know, high contrast graphic-y on the inside and bright red, and they didn't listen to me. And that happens with every project, but I think people are genuinely happy. And and that's what the impression I get when I go there and visit it. And I think they're very happy with how the animals feel in, in these buildings. The feedback that I get from the people who are actually working in the workspace is incredibly positive. Like they are proud of the workspace. It's bright, it's colorful, there's lots of natural light. It's incredibly functional, it's durable. Yeah, I just, the end result exceeded, I think, any of our expectations for how amazing this facility is. The final design of Oregon Humane Society's The New Road Ahead project thoughtfully separates the four principal programs between the two buildings. It benefits people and animals alike while creating the adjacencies and circulation critical to efficient campus operations. This innovative design will likely spark similar initiatives in the broader animal welfare community, heralding a new era of animal care. OHS has not just expanded its physical footprint, but has carved a path towards a future where architecture and empathy converged, creating a haven for animals in need. And I will put in a little plug that you can bring your animal to the Oregon Humane Society for veterinary care too. They have great doctors, a great facility, and it's a sliding scale. So it also relies upon people who can afford to, to take their dogs to the vet or cats to the vet. So if you need a vet, I highly recommend them. Well, we, we are about to tell everybody that. <laughs> Before we close out this episode, I always try to gain some additional insight from our guest about the greater industry. I was curious what Sarah saw as the biggest game changer for sustainable design. Awareness. I say that as an in, from an industry standard. I mean, it, it has been until fairly recently, in my opinion, hard to, to tap into how you can change the meter on that. And certainly AIA has started with this you know, 2030 plan and people are also getting on board with net zero. And but I think it's just people becoming more aware of of what construction does to our planet and how we use so many resources and they're not sustainable. And people are becoming much more aware of like, do I choose this product or do I choose this one that is, you know, recyclable? I mean, people's awareness is I think what's going to really change the industry because we have to change our culture and that's huge. But I think people, people becoming aware of the importance of it is the first start. And will be lasting. In terms of like materials, there are so many more, you know, interesting, exciting materials coming out and innovative ways that people are, you know, finding ways to, you know, or uh, using biology to, to tie fabrics, for instance, was one of the ones I'm using this morning. There are so many new products that are being tested because people are thinking outside of the box. They're seeing the legitimacy of, of worrying about things, but also just simplifying. 
building something that's built to last, not just throwing something up because you can make a quick profit. I, you know, I don't, I don't can't control those things. We live in a capitalist society, but gosh, I, I hope people are trying to build more simply with better materials and see that as a value. I certainly am. You know what I was saying about the Oregon Humane Society is we tried to build a, a building that will last and is durable and will live, but also is inspiring from an architectural level to be in, not necessarily win awards, but be in that space. And I think that that will contribute to the sustainability of that building. And that's, that's the attitude I think that I'm excited about people feeling is the worth of buildings as opposed to their disposableness. I really enjoyed this conversation with Sarah and am really looking forward to getting to tour this facility after the first of the year. I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. When I was going through those tween teen years, I would have several arguments with my mom about her not being political enough or caring enough about women's rights or this or that. I forget what even some of our arguments were about because they were about me learning to stand on my own and develop my own ethos and my own thoughts. But I remember she said, Sarah, I just can't fix the world. I can only fix my corner of it. And I felt at the time that that was, I, I resonated with me, but at the time I was like, well, you're just giving up. And the older I've gotten, the more I realized that, yes, some people, we do have the opportunity to do that world domination. Some people are just making making those big worldwide impact. But some people also, their temperament is different. And mine, as I've said before, my, my skills are not being that big public. I'm not going to ever be Elon Musk, nor do I want to be. But what I'd like to leave the impact of is, is what I do well, and that is bringing people together, being able to have conversations, learn from people, have them learn too, and, and finally to build or design buildings that have a lasting impact on people, that make their lives better or in animals better. But I like to build things that people enjoy and their lives are enriched by. That I leave the place a little bit better because I was involved. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.